Okay, Boker Tov, good morning. As I said, our last class for a little while, as uh, taking summer vacation soon, but uh, please God, either Rabbi Moskowitz or our summer kolal, our wonderful summer kolal rabbis will, will teach. So we're on Pasha Shlach, and uh, we're continuing what is unfortunately actually a sad uh, decline in the Jewish experience. It's as if Chumash peaks at Har Sinai, the seminal greatest moment of Jewish history, the greatest moment of revelation. We spoke this past Shabbos about the greatest generation, the Dordea, not only D-Day, but the uh, Dordea, the other D-Day, Dordea, um, the greatest generation who, who, uh, 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 who received the, lo- the greatest level of revelation, the greatest level of unity. And right after Arsinai, it's as if we peaked and there's a decline. We're told, how did the Jewish people leave Arsinai? Rashi and Asik's Parsha in Tuisto tells us. How do we leave Arsinai? Ketina kaboreach mi beis ha-sefer. All the schools are letting out this week here in Florida. If you're listening online, I know we're... we're Florida's weird in that way. Kids have school for two more weeks. But in Florida, schools are all letting out this week. Oh my God, I have kids in three separate schools. They're all letting out this week. So do the kids walk away slowly? Do they turn their back? And do they savor? And do they sadly say goodbye? The bell rings on the last day. They are out of there. They are out of there. They don't look back. They don't pass go. They don't collect $200. They are out of there. So that's sadly the way the Jewish people are described at Har Sinai. Did we savor the moment? Did we turn around the way you exit the Kotel and walk backwards? No. We ran Ketina Kaborech Mbesa Sefer. And maybe that was indicative of what was to come. Kivros Ataiva, the, the, the fact that we were um, tempted and we were lustful, the fact that we were ungrateful and we complained, the misoninim, the story now in this week of the, of the Maraglim, we're going to study of the spies, what happens right after the story of the spies. Next comes Korach. Korach and the story of rebellion, and the story of ego, decentralizing authority, diminishing the community. So we kind of peaked, and we now begin a series, the second half of Bamidbar. In many ways, this is the adolescent rebellion of the Jewish people. If you see Chumash as a model of the development of the Jewish people, correlating or paralleling the development of a child, there's infancy, there's dependence and reliance, there's adolescent rebellion teenage, young adult, and so on. And this was kind of all of the experience. The Midbar is that incubator where the Jewish people turned from a slave nation to going through these growing pains and going through these different stages to emerge, hopefully, as young adults ready to enter the land and ready to form, and ready to form a nation. But we are, and, and I know this because I have now three teenage daughters, and my oldest three, it is, or two and a half, it is, it is uh, a very difficult stage to have adolescents and teens and preteens, and that's where the Jewish people are. Rebelliousness, testing authority, complaining, somewhat ungrateful, um, taking for granted. Uh, I don't mean to despair, Khalilah, my kids are yeah. fantastic, but this, th- that's the nature of this, of this age and of that category of, of kid. So we have the beginning of our Parsha, Parsha Shlach. Um, let's do our quick overview, and then we're going to get into the story of the Maraglim proper. It's on page 798 in the Stone Chumash, if you want to just follow the overview quickly. The command to send the spies, right? The, the Mepharshim encourage us to see in the very way that the command is recorded, God's dissatisfaction. The fact that the Kosh the Ribbon Shalom, was not entirely on board. What does it say? Shlach lecha anashim. Send for you. It's as if Ribbon Shalom is saying, I don't need it. I don't need it. That's right. Right? Rashi. I don't need you to go check it out. I know the land. I'm sending you to the land. I set aside this land from the very creation of the world. You're not going for me. You want to go for you? Okay. Check it out. 
go for you. Shlach lecha. Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe recounts the whole story, by the way, he remember, he blames the people. I didn't want to send spies. You forced me to send spies. It's because of you that I didn't get into the land. Hisanaf Hashem God got angry at me. Which in Sefer Dvarim, it's a whole question. Moshe Rabbeinu in Sefer Dvarim blames the people that he can't enter the land because they initiated and they pressured him to send the spies. Which, of course, elicits a great question. Why was Moshe not allowed entrance to the land? Because of Memoriva, because he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, or because he displayed anger according to the Rambam, or because he rebuked the people and called them um, rebellious. All the different reasons that are given. But the bottom line is it's usually associated with the fact, the episode of the rock of Memoriva. Why does Moshe in Sefer Dvarim, when he recounts the story, he blames them, because of you, you God got angry at me and he didn't let me enter the land. What's the connection? I want to give a whole share about that. But, but for another time. Maybe we'll come back to that. Maybe we'll come back to that question. But shlach lecha. Clearly God does not condone. God is not really endorsing or he's reluctantly endorsing this mission. It's not something he's interested in. Interestingly, the Jewish people don't seem to learn from it. Rabbi Moskowitz is not giving the Haftorah class today. But the Haftorah is a great Haftorah. It's the Haftorah of Rachav. It's the Haftorah of when Yehoshua is about to enter the land after we've entered, completed our adolescent stage and we're now in our young adult stage and we're finally ready to enter. We're ready to exit the incubator period, exit the midbar, and enter the land. What does Yehoshua do in anticipation? What does he do first? He sends how many? Not 12, but two. Who are the two spies? Kalev and Pinchas. Kalev had proven worthy in this story. Pinchas is worthy, of course, because the story we'll read in a few weeks. He sends Kalev and Pinchas, and the Haftar records the entire episode. Rachav, who is, uh, when you're young, you hear that she's an innkeeper. Zona is an innkeeper. Which, uh, it's not making fun. I think the Mitzvah is David, the and one of them does. The word Zona is like Mizonos. Mizonos means to nourish. You could nourish and meet the needs physically <laughs> in a number of different ways. So we have, we have Mepharshim, we say Zona means a Mizonos, means an innkeeper. But we know that she was much more than that. The Gemara tells us she was among the most beautiful women in the world. The Gemara says that anyone who had met Rachav and knew her beauty, who could picture her, simply saying her name would arouse them. Saying her name. If you knew what she looked like, just saying her name would cause a rout. That's what the Gemara says. Not me. There's a discussion there. The rabbi says, I say her name, nothing happens to me. He said, well, you never saw her. There's a whole discussion. It's a, it's a, I'm, not, I'm not making it up. It's a discussion in the Gemara. Kalev and Pinchas go to stay with Rachav. And Rachav had been visited by every dignitary in the world, the Gemara tells us. Her services. Why? Again, I don't want to get into this. I want to give Hoshir on Rachav. Because what did Rachav have? What was her greatest quality was not her beauty. Was what? Her capacity to listen. Dignitaries would go because they could confide in her. Why did you, I suggest, why, the Medrash says, why did Kalev and Pinchas specifically go stay? Think about it for a moment. Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Aaron Kotler, or the Rav and uh, the Babacha Rebbe go on a mission to go investigate the land for the Jewish people. You think they're opening the phone book and saying, we need a prostitute to stay at. <laughs> I mean, why in the world would Kalev and Pinchas, why in the world would they risk their reputations? Why in the world would they tempt them? So why would they go stay with her? Because they knew. She had the greatest black book. They knew they weren't searching her services, God forbid. They were searching her intelligence information. She had unbelievable intelligence. She had a reputation. She had a reputation. And she had a reputation for holding secrets. And she had a reputation for being a great listener. They knew. Word got around. Word got around. Right. So, so um, 
Kalev and Pinchas stay with her and she hides them and the merit of agreeing to hide them from the authorities. They tell her they'll save her and her offspring when they conquer the land. In fact, they do. Rachav actually turns around. Rachav, anyone know who she marries? Yehoshua. Rachav converts and marries Yehoshua. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Why am I telling you all of this? Oh, because the question is, didn't they learn from our parsha? Why is Yeshua sending spies? If it's Shlach Lacha, God didn't fully endorse it, reluctantly endorses the, the mission to investigate the land. Hadn't they learned from their mistake? So when you learn the Haftorah, you have to ask that question. That's not our question. I'm just throwing that out for you. So our parsha begins Shlach Lacha, Yeshua Sa'aretz, Ishechad, Ishechad, from each tribe. And then it goes through and it names the, uh, the, the, um, spies. the spies. In Pasuk Yerches, you'll see what is the mission. We're going to come back to this. The mission is, see the land, Mahi. How is it? Tell us about the land. Tell us about the land. Rashi actually in Sefer Dvarim, when it repeats it, uh, when it repeats the story, it says, go investigate the Davar. Bring back Davar. Rashi says, what's Davar? Go find out what language they're speaking. The Maharal, in his Gurarya, his commentary on Rashi, says, who cares what language they're speaking? You're sending spies to investigate the land. You want to know. Do they have missiles? How's their air force? Where are they? Are they in the valleys, on the highlands? What's the topography? What's the climate? Where the... That, those are the questions you ask. You don't ask. Who cares which dialect of Farsi, which dialect of Arabic? Which, who cares? So you know what the Maharal says? Unbelievable word. Maharal says, is Loshan Medabrim, it doesn't mean what language. It means find out what they're talking about. Because what one talks about says everything about them. Eleanor Roosevelt famously said, what did she say? Small people, great people talk about ideas. Average people talk about things. Small people talk about people. Great people talk about ideas. Average people talk about things. Small people talk about people. Says the Maral is Go investigate and bring back the Davar. Find out what they're talking about. Are they great? Are they average? Are they small? What are their merits? Who are they? What's their fortitude? What's their strength? That was the mission. But here in our parsha, it says Uriisim Mahi. Go see Uriisim. Go check out the land and bring us back the results. Spies go. They come back. We know they report negatively about the land. We're going to see this in a moment, but it's really a big question. How could we be so critical? The spies are portrayed as great villains. But did they do anything so bad? They were told to come investigate the land and report on what they saw. And they come back and report on what they saw. Giants, the fruit, the land. It's intimidating. It's overwhelming. I don't know if we can do it. Why are they so accountable? Kalev tries to resist. Where did he get the fortitude to resist? Because Moshe changed his name. Yoshua Moshe changed his name. Kalev went to Hebron. Mara Samach Pela. Kalev checked in with the Avos in order to get the Chizuk. Why did he go there? Because he anticipated what was going to happen and he didn't want to be pressured to follow the crowd. Asks Rav Volber, Rav Shlomo Volber, the great Mashkiach Zatzal. One second. Why did Kalev have to go to Hebron to find the fortitude to resist? If he already knew that they were going to report negatively and he wanted to disagree, so disagree. Why did he have to go to Hebron? So says Revolba, you see an unbelievable lesson. Even when you know what's right, you're at risk of following the crowd if you can't find Chizik, the strength to resist. Even when you know what's right, 
He didn't go to Hebron to Davin, tell me what's right. Before he went to Hebron, he knew what was right. Even before he ever went. So why did he bother going? Says Revolbi. Because even when you know what's right, but you're going to be in a position where you'll be pressured to violate your principles and ideals and values, you need to find avos. You need to find pillars to lean on, to draw strength from, to empower you and embolden you to resist the pressure to go with the crowd. Karlev tries to resist, they shout it down. The people react with a national hysteria, they go back and they cry the whole night. What night was this on the Jewish calendar? The 9th of Av. And that's we know what caused it to be designated as an inauspicious day in perpetuity, the 9th of Av. We all know the Gemara says, the Medrash says, that um, Kosh Baruch Hu says, you had a Bechia Shachinam, I'll give you a Bechia Ladoros. You cried for nothing all night, I will make you cry for generations. And unfortunately, God made true on that promise. Whether it was these, all these significant dates in Jewish history, from the expulsion of Spain, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the Holocaust, until today, major, of course, the destruction of the two Batei Mikdash, major catastrophes of Jewish history occurred on the 9th of Av, all because of the way the people, the way the people reacted. Some, therefore, wanted to, okay, let's rush the land, never mind. And it was wrong. Once God decreed, it was wrong to violate the decree. Moshe goes and he davens for 40 days for the Jewish people. I'm sorry, Moshe davens uh, for the Jewish people. He pleads with Hashem and uh, he's successful. It's fascinating why he's successful. What's the secret? How does Moshe get God to acquiesce? How does Moshe get God to agree? These are the words that we tap into. Moshe gave us a formula. You want to appease the Almighty? Here it is. The Yud Gimel Midos of Rachamim, Hashem Hashem Kel Racham Vachan, Erech Apayim Rechesed, and so on. Um, why does that guide God to appease? How does that work? Gemara Rosh Hashanah tells us that when you're in trouble, simply say these words: Hashem can't help but to forgive. What, what's the mechanism? Why should that work? That's why Slichos, the main component of Slichos, is the Yud Gimel Midos. I'll leave the, all these questions for you to come back to another time. Continue. So, Kosh Baruch Hu forgives, but he decrees, you need 40 years of development in the Midbar. You're not ready to go in. You're not ready to go in. The uh, Torah continues, when you get to the land, the obligation of Karbonos, of the Nesachim, that with the Korban, while it's offered, there are libations, wine, water, sukkahs, the uh, pouring on the Mizbeach of these liquids, which drain and go out, but that's part of the offering. We then have the mitzvah of Chalah, when you enter the land, though we know Chalas Chutzla Aretz is also a mitzvah, then you separate a portion of your land. It's called Truma. It's a tithe, which is given not only in the land, but even outside the land. What's the nature of the mitzvah of Chalah? Why does God want us to take off a piece of the dough? We studied this in the, I think the woman's class has passed uh, Simchas Torah. Many different reasons which are given, which include before you can partake of breaking bread yourself, you have to set aside for others, you have to show gratitude, you have to share. Many, many reasons are given for challah. The first of your bread and so on. Um, idolatry uh, is discussed next. Then we have the Mekoshesh Eitzim, a very mysterious passage. I don't remember if we covered this in the past. Mekoshesh Eitzim is the story of the first one to desecrate Shabbos. And... Uh, and uh, we have a tradition. Gemara says, who might that have been? Do we know who he was? Slavchad. And Slavchad sees in his desecration of Shabbos a nobility, a noble deed. What's noble about ignoring God's word? What could possibly be noble about violating Shabbos? Unless by violating Shabbos and suffering the consequences, you instill in the people that God means business. The people might have seen Judaism as flexible, wishy-washy, doesn't really mean it. 
person sacrifices themselves in order to emphasize and prove to the people that God means business. A big discussion. And of course our Parsha ends with the third paragraph of Shema, Vayomer, Tzitzis. The mitzvah of tzitzis. We'll come back to it in a moment. But I believe that our parsha begins and ends with bookends. The same word is used in the beginning and end of the parsha. And I think it's to draw a very special connection between the two. So if you take your source sheets, if you're listening online, they should be on the website as well. If you take your source sheets and look, I want to go through somewhat quickly, who are these Miraglim? This is what I want to take a look at together. These Miraglim are not ordinary individuals. When we read the story, we mistakenly assume these are villains. These are wicked, nefarious, evil people. These are people who uh, defied and rebelled against God. He trusted them. He sent them on a mission. And they blew it. And it's so easy to superficially dismiss the Miraglim as average people who failed the mission. Villains. Villains of the Jewish people. But that's not who they were. These were none other than the princes. Moetzah's Gedolei HaTorah of the Jewish people. These were the Gedolei Yisrael. The most righteous, the most learned, the most virtuous. That's who was chosen to go on this mission. Medrash tells us in source number 2, the Medrash Rabbah in Bamidbar, Mikan shayu tzadikim b'fnei Yisrael u'pnei Moshe. V'yaf l'moshe lo ratz l'shalcha midas atzmo atshin nimlach b'akadosh baruch v'akol echad v'echad ploni mishevet ploni v'amalei ru'u yameim. These people were beloved to the, to the Jewish people. These individuals, the Nesim, were chosen and were beloved and were admired by the Jewish people and by Moshe. Moshe hesitated. He was unsure of their worthiness till he consulted with the Almighty, with the Ribbono Shalom. But a Kodesh Baruch who gave his consent. God says they are worthy. So when we talk about who these, mission, who these spies were on this mission, these were no ordinary individuals. These were sent with God's endorsement. Rashi tells us in Source 3, Not only that, whenever the word Anashim is used in the Pasuk, it indicates significance, importance. So when it says, Kulam Anashim, they were all distinguished men, these were not Nebuchs. They don't go recruit some homeless people and say, could you go to Israel, risk your life and check it out for us, Canaan? These were the Nesim. Ru'uyimheim. Anashim chashuvim. The Ramban continues, source 4. You'll notice about the order of the names that are given. Mana akasav ashvatim lola diglehem dosam. The Nesim were given not. It's an unusual order. A number of times the Nesim are given in the Torah. We just read at the end of Parshas Nassau with their offerings on the day of the inauguration of the Mishkan. In the encampments we saw it. Sometimes the Nesim are given according to the order of the encampment. And sometimes the Nesim are listed according to their age. The chronology of their age. In Parshas Shlach they're listed according to neither. Menira says the Ramban, why? They're listed in order of merit. They're not ordered according to their tribe, the tribal positioning. They're not ordered according to their age. They're ordered according to their merit. The one who's greater. As if to emphasize on the list that these are great men of great merit, of great importance. So how could it be? How could they fail? We read Parsha Shlach and we say, 
ah, we never would have failed this mission. Kosh Baruch should have sent us. We'd go to Canaan. God promised us this land flowing milk and honey. We'd see its beauty. We'd see its greatness. We'd see its potential. We'd come back and tell the people, pack your bags, we're going. How could they, who were so great, fail so simply? Says the Zohar, source 5. They were all tzaddikim, but they, they took bad advice. They followed a bad path. Why they take bad advice? Because they said to themselves the following, If we lead the people into the land on Aliyah, Nizboer Anon Milahaveration. We're going to be removed. We're going to be replaced. They're going to find new leaders. We are the leadership for this Tukufa, for this stage, for the emergence from Egypt, for, for the desert. We're going to enter the land. There's going to be an election, right? Today, a new president of Israel was appointed. Ruby Rivlin is the new president of Israel. He descends from students, Talmidim of the Grah, who moved to Israel on the wave of Aliyah when the Grah instructed his students to go. It's a very interesting individual. The new president of Israel. A new stage. No, he's very traditional. He's not observant. I just read this morning that he's connected. Remember the shul I spoke about a few weeks ago? I had gone to Beit Knesset's Achtos Yisrael where the Etzel and Lechi fighters where the Irgun were. So he's connected to that shul. That's what I just read that. Anyway, so so the Maraglam say to themselves, if we go now and take the people on the land, there goes our term. There goes our leadership. We're going to be replaced. Moshe will appoint others. We merited to be the leadership in the desert. But once we enter the land, we won't be. So again, I ask you, how could the Miraglim be so egotistical? How could they be so self-centered? How could they be seeking such honor? That's what they were worried about? Doesn't make sense. How could the Zohar talk such Lashon Hara about our Heilig and Asiyim, about our great leaders? Says Rashi, source 6, they went and came. What does it mean they went? Just as their coming was with an evil scheme, they're going. What is Rashi telling us? They had made up their mind before they ever left. Their mistake was not when they returned. They were accountable not for what they reported on. They were accountable because they saw such negative glasses. They had already drawn their conclusion. They had already decided before they ever left. So what's going on? These are not ordinary individuals. They're extraordinary individuals. They're the Nasim. They're the heads of the tribes. They're righteous. Anashim chashuvim. Ru'uyimim. God endorses them. And yet the Zohar tells us they're worried about losing their position. They had made up their mind before they ever went. What is going on? What is the proper way? Now, Rosh Hashiva from Karen Biyavna, Rav Chaim Yaakov Goldich Zatzal, in his Sefer Asifas Marachas, Source 7, gives what I think is the most compelling insight that really opens up and reveals the entire story of the Miraglim. It's very telling for, and, uh, on contemporary, in very contemporary ways. He says, here is hidden the secret of the, of the mistake of the Meraglim. We saw in the Zohar that the Meraglim um, spoke negatively because they were worried about losing their position. How could it be, he asks. 
Next paragraph. Mishum shemanig mechavein is chanichav bedarche avodas hat kufaso, vutsuros han hagaso mevatas es hamesila ruchne sheoso dormis nahelba, umemela manig shador midbar maora ad the shisim beis hamedrash hamidbari hamis nahelba and hagash shemayimid aminatek ba olam asia vahanatia haochel lechem shemayim varo amaris elokim. Let me tell this to you outside. Says Rav Goldvecht. Unbelievable insight. The existence in the desert was categorically different than the existence in the land of Israel. The desert existence was a purely spiritual existence. The desert existence was 40 years of learning in Kolel. They saw the potential of 40 years. Until then it had been. What did they do in the desert? Did they have to set up a military? Was there the burden of serving in the army? Enlisted? The draft? No. What protected them? They were complete security, protection, no military needed. Did they have to set up an agricultural society? Plow and plant and thresh and harvest? No. The mun fell, the slot, they were good to go. Did they have... They didn't have to do anything. Everything was provided for them. What did they do? What did they do? They studied Torah. Moshe taught them. Moshe was trying to teach them, transform them from a slave nation into a holy people. He sat and he taught them God's expectations, the laws, the values, the ideals, the philosophy, and so on. These Nisim are leading a lifestyle that is purely spiritual, where everything is provided for them, and they see, uh uh-oh, they go into Israel, says Rav Govecht. And what do they realize? Whoa, if we go into Israel... If we enter the land of Canaan, we have to set up a military. We're going to be drafted out of the yeshiva. We're going to have to serve. If we go into Israel, we're going to have to leave the yeshiva, the kolo. We're going to have to work the land. We're going to have to provide. We're going to have to earn a living. If we go into Israel, we're going to have to set up a police force, a judicial system. We're going to have to set up tax collectors. If we go into Israel, we're going to have... Let's stay in the Midbar. Let's extend this experience. Says Rav Govech, they weren't worried about losing their position because they were driven by ego. They were worried about losing their lifestyle. They were worried about losing the experience of learning, of being purely spiritual. They didn't understand. Kosh Baruch Hu never intended for that to be permanent. You want to learn for a few years after you're married? That's beautiful. You've got to earn a parnasa. You've got to contribute to society. You've got to learn to combine and integrate your learning with working, with contributing, unless you are one of the unique individuals who deserves to be supported to learn full-time. Says Rav Goldwicht, the mistake of the spies, these were not ordinary individuals, and this was not an ordinary mistake. They weren't afraid, and they were, they were afraid of, of a loss of spirituality. That's what's going on. That's what explains the entire thing. I want to add on, I want to suggest, here are the bookends. What were they told to do? Uri'isem es ha'aretz. Beginning of the parsha. See the land. What's the last part of our parsha? The third paragraph of Shema. What are we told to do with our tzitzis? Uri'isem osam. You tell me, is it a coincidence that same word Uri'isem is used? And what is the way that Uri'isem is used at the end of the parsha? When we see the tzitzis, what impact is it supposed to have? How does it serve? How is it a catalyst to remind us? Rashi quotes the Gemara. Because what color was in the tzitzis? We may or may not have it again today. The tcheles. The turquoise, the contrast of the blue and the white, says Rashi, was reminiscent, was to elicit a memory, a thought. 
an image. What image? Tcheles is doma liyam, and liyam is doma lerakia, and rakia is doma lekisei akavod. The tcheles look like the sea, the blue of the sea. The blue of the sea look like the heavens. And you look to the heavens and you think about the kisei akavod. You remember Hashem. So when you look at the tzitzis, are you supposed to see with your eyes? Or are you supposed to see beyond? Are you supposed to have vision? Are you supposed to have imagination for what could be? Tzitzis is a reminder of our ability to see beyond what's right in front of us. That the physical is not the end. It's a catalyst. It reminds us. It draws a picture. And I think that's what Hashem was asking the spies to do in the beginning. Don't see what lies immediately in front of you. See beyond. Use your imagination. Picture an autonomous people living in a land. Thriving. Making the Torah come alive by integrating it into the special quality of the land. Israel is the only place on earth where you have mitzvos, hatzuluyos, ba'aretz. Everywhere else in the world, spirituality and physicality, the mundane, the material, and the spiritual are removed, are divorced, are running in parallel and never intersect. Israel is the one place where both live together. Mitzvos, hatzuluyos, ba'aretz. Mitzvos that are fulfilled through dirt, through earth, through the land itself. It is the bridge, the ultimate bridge of Ruchnius and Gashmius. I think that's, we don't have time for now, but that explains why Moshe was not allowed to enter the land either. I suggested once that Moshe was not punished. It wasn't a punishment. It was that Moshe was the leader for the Dordea, for the Midbar. Moshe is the perfect leader for a purely spiritual existence because Moshe himself is purely spiritual. The Lo'ishtvarimanochi, the person who struggles to bridge the physical and spiritual world, God says to him, you can't be in Israel because Israel needs a leadership who can understand how to integrate, how to reconcile, who understands how to find the spiritual in the physical, how to achieve the mitzvahs. Maybe that's why Moshe later blames the people now for his inability to enter the land because that's the correlation, the connection between the two. So we're going to cut it a little short. But what we saw is the miraglim are not ordinary and their mistake was not mundane and was not self-centered, egotistical. The Miraglim were holy, noble, righteous individuals, and they wanted to live on that level permanently. But that was not a Kosh Baruch Hu's message. How to connect this and relate this to contemporary challenges in Israel, of the question of the draft and the burden and yeshiva and so on, I think the lesson is obvious, at least to me. Um, but I think it's a new way of looking at the Miraglim. You'll never read the story of the Miraglim the same again. And I think it's dead on. Rav Golvich has opened up our eyes. Have a great summer, everybody. Enjoy.